episode 442 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I'm here with Michael O'Malley and Andrew Swafford. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about movies that we saw this week in part one. And in part two, we're going to be continuing our Michelle Yeoh series. We're just watching one movie this time, y'all. No, no, no smorgasbord of no, movies. No jigsaw teaching strategies. <laughs> no jigsaw. Yeah, that's 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 what was really holding us back is jigsaw. Uh, this week we're going to be talking about 1994's wing chun or if you're a north american like us 1998's wing chun Mm -hmm. um and we'll get into that because michael's going to be our dub expert uh yeah i watched the legitimate version on amazon prime which is the only way that you can watch it hey you know it's uh we we appreciate what you do for the the sacrifices you make for the podcast. I watched uh, the the one last week, not on Amazon Prime or a legitimate service. So I think I'm like evening out neutral here. I think the true uh, the true Wing Chun is only available on DailyMotion.com, exclusive Locked by Knox County Schools. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, well, let's go ahead and dig into uh, movies that we saw this week. And Andrew, I'm going to start with you. Yeah, um, so I got, I think, all the the newer releases this week. Um, I'll start with the one that just came out this past weekend. That movie is Pathan, uh, P-A-T-H-A-A-N. Um, it's new Shah Rukh Khan movie. Uh, shout out to Shah Rukh Khan and our, uh, our Shah Rukh Khan series, which we did. Yeah, friend of the pod, Shah Rukh Khan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, SRK is uh, a big fan of us. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if people are not familiar with Shah Rukh Khan, uh, you, should you really be. should be. Um, he is uh, the most famous actor worldwide, um, mm-hmm. but not the most famous actor in America because America just doesn't get Bollywood movies or you know, American audiences tend to refuse to watch any movies with subtitles, period. So they don't, don't get distribution here. Um, but Shark Khan, amazing, uh, historic Bollywood actor. He has been out of uh, the limelight uh, for a couple of years. Um, and he is back um, with this movie, uh, Pathan, um, which is a spy movie. Um, it is like a big rip-roaring action extravaganza. Um, so if people got on the Bollywood hype train with RRR last year, this would probably be a good one to follow it up with. Um, but it is a, I think, framed very much as a meta movie about Shah Rukh Khan's um, like return to acting. Not that he's been gone for that long. He just hasn't been in a lot of huge movies in the last I love couple a, of years. I love a good like uh, uh, SRK like like meta movie. You know? Like, yeah, absolutely. He's done quite a few of those, right? Dude, like, dude makes a uh, great meta movie. Om Shanti Om is a fantastic meta movie. Uh, Dilse is also kind of a meta movie if you if you squint at fan. it a little bit fan oh absolutely this is th- we got a similar thing going on here uh but in this case shark Khan plays a um you know a legendary um agent um who is like kind of coming out of retirement um got one who, last job he's got one last job <laughs> right um and and the movie even ends with a fun sequence that uh i don't know if it's really a spoiler to say that like it's him and another 
uh, a major Bollywood actor, Salman Khan, uh, talking about uh, like the fact that they've kind of um, that they've sort of been threatened to be overshadowed in their field by like some new up and coming guys, and that might be a uh, a dig at the RRR guys. I don't know, uh, but uh, this movie seems to be like a uh, attempt to show that the old guys still got it. Shah Rukh Khan is like, uh, how old is Shah Rukh Khan? Um, hold on a moment. Um, he is 57. He is 50 fucking seven. He does not look 57 in this movie. Uh, you remember when people were freaking out about um, Brad Pitt's abs and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Brad Pitt has nothing on Shah Rukh Khan in this movie. Like, dude is absolutely jacked. Um, and yeah, this is just mostly Shah Rukh Khan uh, beating people up and flying helicopters and stuff. The very opening sequence um, is, you know, more ridiculous and over the top than just about any American action movie, barring some Mission Impossible stuff, I suppose. But it's definitely working in the Mission Impossible uh, register uh, in that first sequence he uh, is flying a helicopter inside a warehouse Fuck yeah. Um, yeah. it's it's incredible yeah um, and it is because of the spy movie it's also kind of a story of like double and triple crossings uh, it, it stars these uh, two other Bollywood actors uh, Deepika Hadakone, I think is how you say that guy's name. Probably or that that woman's name. Sorry, and then uh, uh, John Abraham, who plays a character named Jim. Uh, <laughs> he's like he's like the most most fearsome enemy of the state you could possibly imagine. And he introduces himself as my name is Jim. <laughs> Isn't the, uh, the the female lead is the female lead from Om Shanti Om? She is the female lead from yeah. Om Shanti Om. Yeah. Um, so we have a bit of a reunion there. Um, she also kicks a lot of ass in this movie. Nice. Um, and, and because there's like all the double and triple crossings that happen, you kind of get to see Shark Khan fight both against and alongside both of the other leads uh, throughout the course of the movie. Um, and so it's just kind of a fun, like, I want to see this guy fight that guy. Oh, that was awesome. Now I want to see this guy fight that guy. Oh, that was awesome <laughs> too. Like, um, the movie is... Uh, most I, I feel like mostly um, just kind of trying to be broadly entertaining, but there there are some uh, underlying thematics about like patriotism and and people's uh, like what is people's obligation to be patriotic or fight for their country with the knowledge of their country having done horrendous things. Um, I think that ultimately the movie comes down on the side of like yeah the state is awesome <laughs> because like you know any movie that is uh, uh made about like state <laughs> secret service agents uh you know needs to have some sort of a stamp of approval of the government itself um but you can kind of wave it away because it's mostly just goofy nonsense um like some of the the action sequences uh and like the things that happen in them uh just absolutely uh, absurd there's a that there's a big plot point about them needing to get into this safe uh, that is like the most protected safe in the country. And in order to get in, they need two keys. And the two keys are like, you know, 10 miles away from each other, like on opposite sides of town. And so they both have to 
get the keys separately, uh, uh, Shark Khan and uh, Deepika Pat- Patakone, who, again, I'm mispronouncing her name, I'm sure. Uh, they both have to go separately do their little heists, and then they get picked up by, like, jet planes, and the jet planes, like, fly them in the air Superman style <laughs> to the central location, wherein they detach from the planes and fall onto the building. Um, uh, that's the good stuff. It's it's the good stuff, people. Um, this is a movie that I'm very glad that I got to see in theater. It's actually the first Bollywood movie I have seen in a theater, um because most of my access to it has just been through netflix in the last couple of years uh, but if this is playing near you it is a freaking good time uh, you will have fun there's also two musical sequences in it that are um just jaw-droppingly gorgeous um in the way that only bollywood uh, musical sequences can be jaw-droppingly gorgeous um i do kind of wish there was more there's just the one um about uh, I don't know, 25% of the way through the movie and then another uh, during the credit sequence. But both are so good that they kind of make up for the lack of music throughout the rest of the movie. Uh, though there is some really good um, like soundtrack work and a particular uh, vocal line that kind of gets uh, repeated and interpolated for different purposes throughout the movie uh, that kind of makes you uh, wish that American uh, blockbusters like committed to actually having melodic themes uh, because this movie has one and it's it's very effective. Um, but I don't have a whole lot to say about it other than that. Like Shark Khan is a badass. The other people he's acting with are also really fun to watch. Um, the action is all super well done. Um, and it was just a great time. So Pathan gets strong recommendation for me yeah i'm bummed they have it playing near me but it's only like at nine o'clock at night oh <laughs> it's like, worth I... it man you gotta you gotta do it all right i feel you like gotta I... stay up late you stay up late watch some shark con that's right <laughs> it sounds like something i would enjoy you I, would like, man like i i, I just kind of like i wish like I want to just see Tom Cruise and Shah Rukh Khan like in a movie together. Oh man, can you imagine? That would be such an experience. Mm-hmm. Just such an experience. I need a Shah Rukh Khan, Tom Cruise face off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be great. <laughs> like that. Like, can you just imagine how good that movie would be? <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, also if you haven't just you know another just another plug if you haven't seen RRR like it's sure actually they're yeah. a theater is bringing it um ahead of the Oscars like at the beginning oh, of good. March and I I like if I'm around I definitely want to go see it in a theater. Yeah. Zaka got me excited about the fact that um the big musical sequence in the middle of RRR Natu Natu uh, is being performed at the Oscars. That's literally so, the only thing oh, I'm going to wow. watch at the yeah. Oscars. I'm by just going to tune in for that and tune out. By the principal leads? Mm-hmm. I would hope so. Yeah, I believe so. I think the uh, two actors are going to be there. Um, oh, man. Yeah. Um, but yeah, if, you, if you've if you not seen that movie, you should definitely watch it before the Oscars so that you are, are in with the, the cool kids enjoying all the fun. Yeah, and then you're going to be like, why was this not the... So really yeah, all, all quiet on the western front yeah <laughs> really <laughs> triangle of sadness really <laughs> anyway 
Um, you saw another one though, which is uh, kind of a, a hot, a hot, you know, independent movie pick for people for the best of the year. Yeah, um, this movie is After Sun uh, by Charlotte Wells. Uh, this is her feature debut, um, and this has been a bit of an indie darling. Um, David Ehrlich put it at the top of his best of the year list last year. I've, I've seen pretty much nothing but rave reviews across the board from it. Um, and, and I enjoyed it quite a bit. Um, I don't know if I'm as hot on it as a lot of people are, but, um, it is kind of a small, uh, small scale, um, understated, uh, melancholic movie. Um, that, what's his name? Uh, uh Paul Mescal's nominated for best actor. Oh, cool. Um, he's really good in this. Um, so it would be cool if he won. Who is he up against? I don't remember. Um, oh, he's up against... Uh, uh, Brendan uh, Fraser. Brendan Fraser. Those folks. I feel like the Oscars being what they are, they're probably going to give it to Brendan Fraser, but I don't know. Who who, who can say? Sure. Um, anyways, this movie uh, stars, as Zach said, uh, Paul Mescal um, and a... Uh, very young, I think first time actress. Uh, well, maybe maybe second or third time actress. This is definitely her first feature, uh, named Frankie Corio, uh, and they play a uh, daughter and father. Um, they are on a vacation uh, together in Turkey, and you get the sense that they don't see each other all that often. Um, uh, the the daughter, uh, whose name is Sophie, in the movie, uh, she is. A child of divorce, um, and and she has a good relationship with her dad, but it's kind of a weird, distant relationship with her dad. Um, most of the movie formally is trying to emphasize the fact that um, the dad is kind of an unknown quantity, or like there's a there's there's only so deep into the dad's psyche that she can really get uh, because of her distance from him, her temporal experience with him. Um, how much he's kind of letting her in. Uh, there's a, a very lengthy uh, scene near the beginning of the movie um, where she goes to bed um, and he uh, goes out to the balcony of their hotel room and smokes a cigarette and dances. And it's one unbroken shot from inside the room, uh, kind of looking past uh, the daughter's silhouetted body. And we're, we're seeing the dad through like past that and through the pane of glass. Um, but we don't know what music he's listening to, if he's listening to music or like what is inspiring uh, this particular dance party, because that was not the mood uh, before this moment. Um, so th and then there's also like scenes where the dad is is breaking down, crying uh, later on in the movie with with no real context given. And so th I was talking a couple weeks ago about St. Omer and mm -hmm. how that movie was playing with perspective and playing with limited information and, and sort of asking the audience to speculate on uh, what is not being said. And this is a movie that is um, very much uh, doing a similar thing, but there's really not all that much speculation uh, to be done. Uh, there's, it, it is just kind of um, gesturing towards a kind of um, undefined sadness um, at the heart of the dad and in the heart of this relationship. Um, there's a there's a scene in the middle where um, Sophie is just feeling kind of down. Her dad's asking her about it and she's like, well, you know, I don't really, there's not any particular reason why I'm feeling down. You don't ever have days where you just feel 
like blue or or low or whatever and and she doesn't really know that this is what she's doing but she's describing depression um and her dad uh we, the the camera kind of slowly pans over to him while she's talking about this and we see him looking in the mirror and he ends up like spitting in his own reflection in the mirror um implying that like he knows this feeling too well um and he's there there's a, a, like a, a renewed sadness for him recognizing that feeling uh kind of being passed on to his daughter um and and that's kind of most of the movie um there's there's very little in the way of plot here uh, we just kind of move from one scene of them having like a a mundane lazy day in Turkey to another scene of them having a mundane lazy day in Turkey. A lot of the biggest plot points involve um, Sophie um, playing the uh, motorcycle arcade game um, at the hotel um, or um, singing karaoke without her dad who refuses to get up there with her. Um, there's, there's no big like dramatic reveal um, really. Um, there's just, sort of you having this lived experience um, with these two characters who um, feel at a, like they love each other, they enjoy each other's company, but there's this strange unspoken distance uh, between them. Um, and, and the movie kind of lets you sit in that and, and just kind of ponder um, like the nature of, of family relationships. Right. And, and the nature of uh just how to deal with difficult undefined emotions and, and how to communicate them to other people, or if they can ever truly be communicated to other people. Um, there is one interesting formal, um, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, like a formal conceit to the movie where um, Sophie has been playing around with a digital camera um, and she is, often just like filming her dad, asking him questions and things like that. And the movie will often cut between this like really, you know, glossy high def, you know, 2023 or 2022, a 24 movie aesthetic uh, to um, the like really, really scuzzy low res, uh, you know, home quality uh, or consumer grade camera that is being held by like an eight year old. Um, and, and like the, the, the way in which the movie jumps back and forth between those things and the way in which it uses the footage uh, to kind of like place you in time. Um, uh, because uh, like Sophie is also watching this footage back as in that some parts of the movie, uh, you're sort of displaced in time. Uh, I, I think that's kind of interesting. And, and I would like to see more movies play around with um, older video formats like Skinnamary. In Skinnamarink, the uh, I think most of that um, vintage uh, analog visual uh, uh, quality is is digitally faked uh, in post. So I think this is actually like you made with that camera, um, which I appreciated. Um, Bring back movies that look like Inland Empire and Bamboozled. That is correct. <laughs> I agree. Um, but yeah, I don't Just really have a two. whole. I don't, I don't have a whole lot else to say about after sun other than, you know, it was uh, moving. It was sweet. Um, it was a good movie. I I'm curious to see where Charlotte Wells goes from here. Um, but if you are looking for something that's a little low key, a little melancholy, um, uh, I, I would definitely recommend it. I've been waiting. It's a, uh, I think movie has the 
has the streaming stuff. So I've been waiting for it to show up there, but it has not yet. Mm-hmm. But, you know, between that and decision to leave, they've really been just kind of been annoying when it comes to streaming. <laughs> yeah, I remember uh, last week's Michael was talking about how uh, his uh, Michelle Yeoh movie he was watching, Yes, Madam, was available on Amazon for like $7. Um, I unfortunately paid $7 to rent after Sun, which... I, I feel like I've been um, swindled, but um, you know that's that was the only way I could watch it, so I, that's how I watched it. Welcome to the future, um, film distribution. <laughs> Welcome to the future. <laughs> um, speaking of the future, let's talk about Tar. Hey, yeah, Tar is the future. <laughs> um, so uh, this is finally, if you would like to stream it, it's on Peacock. I think it's on, it's on like, you know, on-demand platforms also. But in terms of like streaming channels, they just put it on Peacock. And uh, so I caught up with this. Um, we've talked about it a little bit on the podcast before, but for those who aren't familiar, it centers around uh, this very, um, you know, probably one of the like in terms of this movie like one of the greatest living composers and conductors of all time Lydia Tarr who's played by Kate Blanchett um she's the the uh chief conductor of the Berlin Orchestra um and has also like at this point like i think she has like a book coming out has 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 this very um prestigious career in conducting and composing if you're curious about her accolades like the very first scene of the movie is her doing this new yorker talk and the guy like reads for like five minutes straight like all of these fake accolades <laughs> since she's did not you read yeah. zach by the way did you read the richard brody review of this movie no i haven't yet it's kind of funny it's a negative review but it's kind of funny because he kind of uh makes uh, fun of his employer he, not his employer. He refers to his colleague who's in this scene, and he talks about that it's like this pandering, like you know, boring <laughs> scene. It's like that my colleague is in. <laughs> oh my god, that's funny. I should read that. I would. I would. I would. If I was, you know, working at the same place as the person in this movie, I would also make fun of him, just because I would have that um, that uh, ability. Um, but after that, it's a pretty, it's a kind of a strange movie. It's a very, um, I wouldn't say unassuming, but like, um, there's not a lot like, um, it's very under the surface stuff happening. So mm-hmm. I think uh, Michael, you described it when we talked about it a couple months ago, like there's this, it's kind of crazy because it really like ramps up at the back half of the movie, but there's this like kind of simmering undercurrent of a kind of me too situation between tar and a former, um, former no, protege. Yeah. Former protege who is alleging that she like, uh, blackballed her pretty much. And, um, and made it impossible for her to get another conducting gig. Um, at the same time, like Tar's assistant, um, who's played by Naomi uh, Merlot from Portrait of a Lady on Fire, is like another kind of hopeful conductor who is working right now as her as her assistant to kind of hopefully catch on with a job as something opens up. 
which um, like the assistant job opens up with this German orchestra, but she, you know, she kind of leads her, leads her astray on that one. Um, But yeah, for a lot of the movie, like there's a simmering undercurrent of this situation with this former protege who is accusing Tar of all of these different things in terms of like kind of grooming, grooming her and, and forcing her to, um, you know, do a lot of favors and, and different things for her um, in order to kind of rise to the ranks. And then when she, you know, didn't fulfill that, she was blackballed. And, and there's, there's multiple scenes where like Tar is talking about her and saying that she just become became like psychologically unhinged and, and crazy. Um, and so, but at the same time, like that's, that's all happening where the more of the foreground thing going to your that's taking place is she's preparing for this effort to, to perform um, Mahler's fifth symphony, which will complete like this, um, which will complete this, this series of all of Mahler's symphonies um, that she has recorded. But so she's like preparing for that. Um, her wife, who's played by Nina Haas, um, is the the first violinist in the in this orchestra. She also has this like new cello player for, who came from Russia. Who you like? You kind of have her starting this 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 one on one working with this this new uh, cellist who. Um, you can kind of see like the, the early stages of how, uh, she kind of brings people into her sphere. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but yeah, just, it's, it's really like a, it's just kind of a fascinating movie. Um, Cate Blanchett is like, Cate Blanchett, I feel like Michelle Yeoh, like we're doing this whole series on Michelle Yeoh, she'll probably win the Oscar, but I'll be honest, Cate Blanchett is the better performance. Um, like, like she a hundred percent just like embody like it's Kate Blanchett, but after like after about an hour, you completely forget it's Kate Blanchett. It becomes Lydia Tarr after a while. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just kind of like one of those like classic complete embodiment movie star performances. Was the um, role written for her? Oh, I don't know. I would have to look. It look seems that. like it. Like or at yeah, least it really she does. Um, and. And yeah, so you kind of just have all this stuff happening around. And she's also, you know, kind of struggling to um kind she's constantly like like kind of struggling to make sense or like come really like come to terms with this stuff. Um you have this one scene that I kind of enjoyed in the the beginning of the movie where she's like teaching a class at Somewhere, uh, I think it's a uh, Juilliard. She's it's teaching Juilliard. a class at Juilliard. It's Juilliard, yeah. And just like lays into this dude who doesn't want to play Bach. Is it Bach? Yeah, I think it's yeah, Bach. It's, it's Bach. Because of um, because he doesn't want to like uh, he, he's just not interested in playing cis, white cisgender male composers pieces, and she just like lays into him, which, in all transparency, I'll kind of say. I somewhat agreed with her. She was super, she was very mean, but also I was like, oh, she makes some points. She's correct um, in the scene, I think, but she, like the, her opposition is a straw man. 
I, I would say. She's also correct in the worst possible way in that yeah. scene, too. Like, yeah. just the way that she goes about it. Oh, it's a real, way. like, you're not wrong, you're just an asshole kind of scene. Yeah, yeah. Which, which makes it way more interesting than any other, like, similar scene where you're, because I'm just like, you're not wrong, but man, you're really lacing it. Like, <laughs> like, like the part where he's, because, like, and it's such a well, like, the 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 kid who she's attacking pretty much like has this nervous like he's his like knee you know is he's shaking you know he's, he's he's shaking his leg the entire time you know he's sitting there mm-hmm. and at one point she's like grabs it and like stops it and it's just such an aggressive oh move yeah. um it's a great scene um i do want to i want to butt in and say andrew you were correct that todd field said that he wrote the script for blanchette and okay. allegedly this is a quote from wikipedia uh, it would never have seen the light of day if she had said no to the role. Mm. Man. Um, that checks out. But so I watched this, I think, mon- was it Sunday? Sunday or Monday? Um, and I've just been kind of sitting on it. Um, I think overall I liked it. I'm not to like, I know some people, I mean, maybe on a second watch, I would, it would grow in my estimation. I was kind of, I was kind of like, this is really good. She's super good. Um, but I don't think I like locked into all the stuff I should be locking in with this movie. I was reading some other reviews, some um, stuff that other people had said about it. And I, yeah, there's just some, at least some things that didn't really click with me. Um, but like we were talking before we started recording, the ending of this is, is incredible. I kind of, I'm definitely in the, in the camp of like the last, <laughs> the last part of this movie is is very much like this dream wish fulfillment type thing or like just kind of nightmarish uh because it just doesn't seem totally realistic in in the different things that kind of happen um but in, but even the way it plays out it's fucking hilarious um <laughs> so i think overall positive this movie but i know um both of y'all have seen it i mean in terms of i guess we can get more spoilery what did anything lingering with tar i'm overall positive on it too um and and definitely felt a lingering presence of the movie in the the days like right after i watched it because it's a movie that it it's not particularly clear like what it's trying to say it has all these it's definitely uh, very ambiguous yeah ambiguity is sort of the name of the game with this movie right like what did and did not happen in the movie is is up for interpretation and then how you're supposed to interpret that and and like what you think todd field is saying about what happened is also a bit of a rorschach test i think but I would say that in the months since I've seen the movie, I haven't really thought about it all that much past the first week. Like, mm. I kind of thought this might be a movie that would grow my estimation more and more as I, I want to go back to it. But I haven't really wanted to go back to it yet. That might change, but uh, that's where I'm at right, with right now. Mm. I really like this movie. I've not returned to it, but... Uh, it was one of my favorite of the year. I don't remember where I ranked it in my cinematary ballot, but... Um... It was up there. And I also, I guess the, the new perspective that I would have about this movie now, as opposed to when I talked about it, whenever I did on the podcast is that I've gone back and watched the other two movies that Todd Field has directed, oh, which yeah. are um, uh, in the bedroom, uh, which is in like, I think that came out in 2001, maybe. And then uh, little children, which is like 2006. And I'm he 
it's a little bit of a mystery to me, like what his thing is, you know, maybe he's not like an auteur in that sense of like, you can kind of track themes through his work or whatever, but like all three of these movies are very different from one another. Uh, in the bedroom is like a very classically structured, um, like domestic drama, basically, um, in which like a couple has to grapple with the tragedy um, that happens about happens an awkward way into the movie to the extent that I'm not sure if it's a spoiler or not. Um, and uh, that's really good. Um, like I thought in the bedroom was good, but it's also not, it's not doing the thing. It's not an art film in the sense that this movie is, um, you know, it's not really trying to be ambiguous or like, it's a conversation piece in which like a well-told story is a conversation piece, but it's not like lampshading things as this is the thing that you'll, you know, like the Juilliard scene, right? Like the Juilliard scene is invented for discourse, right? Mm-hmm. And there's not a lot of that in in the bedroom. Um, Little Children, I thought was just not that good. It was like, okay, there's like, okay things about it, but it's like that kind of like American beauty, revolutionary road style, like, we're living in the suburbs and we have repressed issues stuff. <laughs> um, and uh, Kate Winslet is in that and she's really good um, because Kate Winslet's usually really good in movies. But uh, yeah, if people are interested in seeing other Todd Field movies, I would recommend In the Bedroom, but it is a significant change in pace from Tar. There was, there was a special thanks at the beginning of the movie to a number of people and one of them was Bennett Miller who... I feel like it's a good comparison because I don't think Bennett Miller has a real like distinctive style, but it's also directed like, like one, what is Bennett Miller doing today? Because (laughs) and two, like he doesn't really have a distinctive style. I mean, he's got Capote, he's got, uh, Moneyball and he's got Foxcatcher and he literally hasn't made a movie since Foxcatcher, which it's not a movie I was over the world about, but I'll, but I also didn't think was a poorly made movie. It's like um, a movie that demands to be taken seriously. I feel like that's Todd <laughs> Fields. Is like yeah. he makes movies that like demand to be taken seriously, but he doesn't make the same type of movie. At least in my estimate, like honestly, like I saw a lot of stuff in like you know advertising Tar that was like this guy worked with Stanley Kubrick, which he did in Eyes Wide Shut. Technically, um, <laughs> technically, yeah, and. Tar is kind of Kubrick-like in a lot of ways. It has that mm-hmm. kind of like detached austerity to it, um, but that's not present in his other movies. I don't think like his other movies are much more like um, they're less funny than Tar is, um, but they're also a lot more like emotionally available than this movie yeah. is too. It's just like like I think that that's a good comparison because ben, yeah, Bennett Miller is a director who even Capote like all three of those movies are like you know attention should be paid, but at the same time like you know they're not a uh, they're not a Wes Anderson or a Quentin Tarantino or even like you know on an awards level like a uh, 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 like Stephen Frears who like makes a very specific type of movie that you're kind of like going in you're like I know what this will be like they make very like like every movie is very is is somewhat different you know like Moneyball has a a incredibly different vibe from like Capote or Foxcatcher 
So I don't know. That, that's kind of like I thought about that afterwards. And also it was just like, what's Bennett Miller doing? They should get Bennett Miller to make some more movies. Um, Do you remember his uh, he did like uh, toilet paper advertisements, right? Was it toilet paper advertisements? He had some really bizarre ads. He's done a couple. He's done some commercials and done some music videos. I was just looking. Yeah. Um, but back to Tar, I, you know, yeah, like ambiguity is the best way to describe it. It's it just it is very like and I think that's this the the initial watch. What was kind of because you can never really sink into it at least or at least i didn't i was never able to like kind of sink in i at some point i kind of um you know did a little bit of like a just kind of accepted the ride and and went along but it just it it, it is you know it's kind of a strange one it's it, it's one that you know it takes a little while to kind of get on board even with like uh, because and also just because the character of Tara, like a lot of the the movie outside of her, like kind of having these one on ones with with people, is just kind of her navigating things or hiding things, and like you just kind of have this interesting perspective into how she's trying to make sense of as these things start to kind of climb and become more pronounced and stuff that she needs to deal with. Um, how she's either kind of initially trying to run away from it and then finally just kind of try to put it to the side somewhere. So I don't know. It was good. I don't know if I would have it in my top 10 of the year. It's no avatar. It's interesting. Like I would like there to be more movies like tar. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Like it was, um, like I saw Scorsese had a quote where he was just like Tar made me remind reminded me like why we go to the cinemas and I'm like yeah I kind of get why like it is like yeah. well, Scorsese he gets a quote like that rolled out every year about a different movie <laughs> but I was like with that one I'm like yeah I get it like you go it's just kind of like this this very um, just kind of this big this big ambiguous piece of work that you know i feel like if you went and saw it like it was a good let's go get like a meal afterwards and kind of try to like make sense of it yeah um but uh it's on peacock now if you missed it in theaters but like i said it's also you know it's on rental platforms and things like that so i feel like it's one you probably should see before the before the oscar since like i said i mean no no shade on michelle yo but like Kate Blanchett, that's the best acting. <laughs> yeah, it's a weird that's thing in which acting. Michelle Yeoh would be the more interesting pick in terms of who Michelle Yeoh is at this point, but Kate Blanchett has the way more interesting performance in the acting like that, movie. Yeah, like that's just the, you know, it's kind of like the, is you know, it's just the better, it's kind of like the Leo dilemma with for a long time of like, he's really mm-hmm. good. But there was just always like a just a with a little bit better role, even if it was just kind of a one off for somebody. Um, so I don't know. But uh you know, speaking of Leo DiCaprio, um, he has a questionable um dating history, and uh so does Oedipus Rex. <laughs> <laughs> wow. The other way around though, um, uh, so Oedipus Rex, you may be familiar with the, uh, the Sophocles play, frequently um, psychologized, frequently required reading play in which a man is fated to kill his father and marry his mother, and by gum, he does. Um, <laughs> and so in, um, in the 1960s, I believe this is the 1960s, uh, 
there was a young Italian director kind of making his name for movies that were kind of anguished about sexuality and religion and the role of like the like bourgeois Italian like middle class in opposing like class uprising. Um, uh, Pier Paolo Pasolini. I think that's how you pronounce his first name. His last name is definitely Pasolini. Uh, Pasolini. Um, <laughs> but uh, so this is like a communist Italian made a bunch of movies. And one of which we covered in this podcast of uh, the gospel according to St. Matthew. Um, and uh, his dad, I didn't know this before I watched this movie, but his dad was a fascist, like a Mussolini. He was in Mussolini's army. Um, and so like, if you're a communist living after the war in Italy, thinking about your dad being a communist, that's got to, or excuse me, being a fascist, uh, that's got to, you got some things to work out and he works them out in this movie. And I'm not just, uh, I'm not just armchair psychologizing here. He explicitly said, uh, I'm going to read the quote from Wikipedia. Um, in Oedipus, I tell the story of my complex of Oedipus. The child is me. His father is my father, an infantry officer. His mother is my mother. I tell my mythical life, naturally made epic by the legend of Oedipus. <laughs> it's a very... That's a very, that sounds like the the jo, uh, Joe Bluth thing where she's like, "I'm in love with your brother," and he's like, "Your your brother?" And she's like, "No, no, your brother." He's like, "My brother, Michael." She's like, "No, your other brother." He's like, "My other brother? That's me. That's me." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this is definitely like. Uh him work he was working through some stuff and it's a very it's a movie in which the oedipus character is like shouting and really anguished all the time which is like appropriate to the role like um the gospel according to saint matthew a lot of this is directly taken from um the sophocles text although translated into italian so i didn't i read oedipus rex i didn't recognize them as original lines because they're kind of different because you get this translated in Italian, then via subtitles translated back into English. Um, mm-hmm. but, and every uh, English translation is going to be different. Anyway. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and there's not really those like famous lines in it either. Um, right. It's more like conceptually it's famous, but um, it's pretty straightforwardly the telling of Oedipus Rex, but like a lot of his movies, it's set within uh, this kind of post-war Italy, this like uh, kind of post-neorealism italy in which like you still have the sort of neorealist stuff where um you know a lot of on location shooting and like kind of the crumbling like you know remains of like you know in italy trying to rebuild itself after the war um but like a lot of other pasolini films is doing kind of some kind of like loose and not particularly realistic stuff regarding um music and regarding like the settings of stuff. So like, this is like ostensibly set in, um, Greece, like the, the play, but it's filmed in Morocco for the most part. I think there's parts of it that are filmed in Italy, but it's meant to look like Italy. Um, and there's like a bunch of the music is Romanian, but also like with other stuff thrown in as well. Um, and then the costumes are just really off the wall, like all these different like nationalities being represented in costumes. I'm not exactly sure what's going on with that here, except that it's maybe like an attempt to take the kind of humble production values of the movie and kind of make them seem more mythic by just making them almost timeless or out of place. Um, 
And uh, the most interesting thing is some parts that are definitely filmed in Italy are um, the beginnings and ends of the movie in which like the beginning of the movie, which is when Oedipus is still with his birth parents before they abandon him after he's prophesied to kill his father and marry his mother. And then the end of the movie, uh, which is like after Oedipus has blinded himself and he's wandering around, those are both filmed in like then contemporary Italy, like wandering around. Um, and I think like he's trying to draw like some sort of, he, Pasolini, is trying to draw some sort of uh, political allegory about like the kind of self defeating, um, like kind of liberal, like Italian middle class. Um, you know, in terms of like, it, it will destroy itself because it can't, it lacks the ability to um, understand like the prophecies, like AKA like what Marxism said about, um, you know, the bourgeoisie and whatever. Um, and I'm only saying that I think that's what's going on because that's a lot of times what's going on in Pasolini movies. Um, but uh a lot of this is basically just oedipus rex um and uh boy if he's really saying that he has an oedipus complex like there's some sex scenes in this movie and like that'd be weird to like i don't know man like he's he's like not being very shy about having to work through some feelings about his parents because the there's like an yeah there's like um also the fight scene with his the dad um at the crossroads you know where he accidentally kills his own father is very long and drawn out um kind of like the kind of sexual content of the the film as well and i don't know you know it's not the best pasolini film i've seen but it's definitely interesting and it's definitely also interesting and kind of troubling to see just this dude nakedly like grappling with like his family history in that way um so literally i yeah uh i i watched this on youtube there's a fairly good well it's like 360p but like better than some other online pasolini movies that i've watched there's a fairly good upload on uh on youtube um this is probably looking at his filmography um this is probably his last movie that's like not more famous um because he's got some kind of like like not a lot of people talk about like Mama Roma um, or, or things like that, but then he's got like Theorem and then Sallow, like he did like within 10 years of this movie, um, which are the really famous ones I think of his besides the, the Jesus movie. So yeah. anyway, fourth all watch. Right. well, that's got us all jazzed up for what well, just a spoiler is a very horny movie. In, uh, <laughs> So we're going to take yeah. a quick break and then we'll be back with Wing Chun after yeah. this. Yeah. with part two of episode 442 of Cinematary. In this part, we're going to be talking about uh, Wing Chun, the 1994 film, or 1998 in America, starring uh, film starring Michelle Yeoh, Donnie Yen, Cheng Pei Pei, and Yoon King Tan. Um, uh, 
Yip Wing Chun teams up with a sharp-tongued businesswoman to run a successful tofu business. When bandits kidnap their friend, Wing Chun goes on the warpath, which is not a totally, you know, the the bandits also are just like, let's be like, we just want to really like, we want to get Michelle Yeoh. It's a pride thing. They, yeah, because... they can't deal with the fact that there's a strong woman, and so they keep challenging her to fights <laughs> to yeah. assert their dominance. And it's and it's and it. I love how like the 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 one guy who comes like comes and is just like I'm gonna beat you up, and when I beat you up, you're gonna go home and have a baby. <laughs> <laughs> and then he proceeds, and then she proceeds to beat the shit out of him. And so then maybe he goes home and has a baby. I don't know. I don't know is he works. the guy who ends up calling her mommy at the end of the fight, or is that somebody else? No, that was that was the movie. That was the end. Like you, you keep getting higher up the bandit chain. You have that yeah. the, the the guy who says he's gonna beat her up so bad she's gonna go home and have a baby. Then you have the guy who's like named Flying Monkey, who she yeah. fights in the in the fields and like lights his balls on fire. And, so then, <laughs> <laughs> and then you have his brother who like laughs at him because he's like, ah, you lost your balls, and then uh, gets beat up and has to, and gets beat up so bad that. She, she makes him call her mommy. It's like um, Street Fighter, where like you know yeah. you've got to like go through the whole band. It kind of, uh, honestly, it is. It's honestly, arcade mode. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Honestly, that's the best way to kind of get through this movie. Is it's like an arcade game, you know, like mm-hmm. because you kind of have you have one plot line going through, which is just Michelle Yeoh beating the shit out of these bandits, yeah. and you have another plot line of like people, like the whole town is fucking horny. And everybody's trying to like stick it in everybody, and Michelle. Well, the, <laughs> there, Michelle, there are two parallel marriage plots happening. Yeah. Is, is how I would say it. But no, I just think horny. I think no, I just think they're in generally hor- like literally. There's a scene where the like the men of the town are like are, like tearing down this the like the the city street oh, that, to get absolutely. that tofu. I would describe that yeah. as everyone in town is horny for that. Yeah. <laughs> I guess we should explain, since this is not a very widely seen movie or widely available movie, like yeah. what exactly are the, who are the characters at play? You know, how how do all these plots intersect? I struggle with this myself. So honestly, a nice little refresher would be good. <laughs> I, I can do my best. Um, so there's it, essentially three uh, central female characters. There's Michelle Yeoh's Wing Chun. Uh, there's her aunt, who seems to be like, the same age as her or younger i'm a little unclear as to yeah they say it's her there. aunt but it seems like a cousin or like a sister yeah maybe it's one of these situations where like so some sibling had kids really late or something maybe yeah um they don't get and, into that <laughs> and then we have this third female character whose husband uh has become very uh, sick or injured i i forget which um yeah and she brings her husband to town in hopes of uh healing him and he just like dies very promptly <laughs> and then she's <laughs> gonna like sell herself and you're yeah. like what's going on and, and so like both of these people who are not michelle yo are sort of on the marriage market um because the uh the girl whose whose husband dies they refer to her as the tofu beauty uh, because she <laughs> she ends up like modeling or not modeling, but she's no. at like this tofu shop run by the aunt, and she's selling tofu through the window. And like she, the fact that she's the one selling it is a big uh, draw for the town because 
as Zach said, everybody is horny for this girl. Like when she shows up with like an almost corpse of her husband, like nobody can talk about, nobody can pay any attention to the husband because they're all just like jaws on the floor drooling because of how attracted to her they are. And she's pretty, uh, but I'm just like, yeah, you know. Yeah. I want to point out, so I watched the dub, the uh, North American dub, and they don't say tofu in this. They say bean curd the whole time. Wow. Bean curd beauty. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so there's that plot going on. She's like kind of entertaining the affections of, of several men. Um, and then there's also the plot with the aunt um, who seems to be uh, frustrated by the fact that she's reached a certain age and she doesn't have um, a, uh, a great marriage prospect lined up. Uh, she's also very aware of like the limited options for women in her uh, country and her time period um, where she knows that once she does get married, she's probably just going to be a live in maid for some dude. Um, and she's so also, she's, she's also complaining constantly about never have, you know, being a virgin who's never gotten laid. Yeah. She, she's horny. Yeah. She brings that up a lot. Yeah. Until so it like, happens. She wants to marry a man who is a good lover and, and kind and, and all those things. Yeah. Um, and she kind of leverages the fact that uh, this tofu beauty who is now like staying with her, thanks to Wing Chun being like generous and, uh, and hospitable. Uh, uh, she's using, she's leveraging the beauty and the interest of the tofu beauty uh, to like, can I get, attention on her and in, in a slightly underhanded way i don't know if we want to get into spoilers about that um but then there's also a marriage plot with wing chun who has has no romantic prospects because um, everybody sees her as either literally a man in the case of the guy who she ends up with at the end of the movie um or they see her as, you know, some sort of an affront, like just because she is a woman who doesn't dress particularly feminine and she, um, you know, uses martial arts like that is unacceptable uh, to the male population. So she's like a public enemy, basically. Well, and she's cultivated that on purpose, right? Like she has had mm -hmm. childhood experiences that have led her to like completely reject like traditional femininity. Right, right, right. Yeah, she's a survivor of uh, kidnapping and uh, attempted rape, I think. Um, yeah, I think that's what like led her to go and study with this master kung fu person mm -hmm. to like learn that learn all the skills that she has. Right. She so that's kind skills. of it. She has some skills. Mostly, the movie is the Street Fighter arcade mode, where she's just fighting one <laughs> bandit after another, and like. One of the things that I really like about this movie is that all of the fights or most of the fights have these fun fight long gimmicks where yeah. so for the very first one, um, a bandit comes attacks her and this really uh, ineffectual, useless guy decides he's going to quote unquote protect her and he stands in front of her and she fights this guy through the guy's arms and legs. <laughs> uh there's also the second one. She's she's using uh, uh, like the, this bladed weapon at the end of a pole, um, and she's um, instead of actually killing anybody, she's just kind of like bopping them on the side of the head <laughs> with her blade. Uh, there's a there's a fight um, with where the whole gimmick about a uh, a pan of tofu mm -hmm. that uh, she is 
uh, challenging herself to beat the guy up while holding the pan of tofu without messing with the pan of tofu. Well, like, without he's him got. Touching it. She's she's issued a challenge to him, like if you can break this tofu, yeah, then you win. And so like she's all blocking him the whole time and like throwing the tofu around the room, like <laughs> as she's like kicking his butt in some like anti gravity uh reality defying uh yeah there's a lot of like wire wire effects that are great in this movie yeah yeah well and and and, you know to that point in terms of like her like they're always being kind of a gimmick that like kind of plays to michelle yo's background of like coming up with jackie chan who also is very like he's generally not just straight fighting he there's usually Mm -hmm. some sort of there's a joke there's something happening that he has to like fight through Mm-hmm. Uh, as well there's also one of the ones that i thought was coolest was them uh her fighting somebody on the tip of a spear or yeah. on the pole of a spear that is stuck that in a wall cool. which uh, like if you want to get into phallic symbols he throws this pole into uh-huh. the wall and says if you can pull my pole out you can yeah. <laughs> you win and d- boy does she i also <laughs> like that she does uh-huh. that and then he goes ah you did it all right let's fight again in three days like that's just the role yeah <laughs> just like a video game boss you know like oh you've defeated my first form but you've not seen my final form yet. <laughs> in three days and his final form is just the same as the first form in this it's case. very it's, yeah it's, they're in a time <laughs> in development uh so i had to reuse the assets <laughs> um i will say like i'm curious so i've not seen i've not seen a ton of like hong kong like martial arts movies and i'm curious like what the i have no concept of you know in the 1980s and 90s like what the gender politics of like the film industry are or like even Mm. just hong kong in general like i'm curious because this movie is obviously like very obviously about gender like it's the text of the movies Mm. that like michelle yo is like defying gender stereotypes and in fact fighting people who are interested in like forcing uh like kind of patriarchal or like kind of marriage norms on people and like i'm curious like if if you guys have any more context about that and like how this would have fit into like the broader scene um because this seems very intentional about doing that sort of stuff and i i wish i knew more about uh, the social context I, I can't say that I, I can be much help here either. Um, I've seen a handful of, of wuxia films and Hong Kong action films, but uh, not a lot that predate this movie outside of like um, Touch of Zen, which we did for the podcast a long time ago. Um, but I know there are uh, titles that star female leads, like one of the biggest uh, martial arts films of, of the 60s is Come Drink With Me by King Hu, who also made Touch of Zen and, and uh, Dragon Inn. Um, and that has a female lead. Um, so, But I don't know. I mean, th- this movie does definitely seem like it is uh, trying to buck some sort of a tradition. Um, and honestly, I, I, sorry, go ahead, Zach. No, I was gonna say honestly, like I thought, I thought it was like a lesbian movie for the first half because I thought she, I thought the aunt and her were like just like secretly partners. That's confusing because um, uh, when Donnie Yen's character shows up um, and sees Michelle Yeoh for the first time, he is seeing her and and um, misconstruing that she's a man, um, and and he says in his own monologue, like interior monologue, like, "Oh, she has a new lover." 
um, the guy that he's here to the the woman she's he's here to see. Um, yeah. But I interpreted that as oh he thinks that his girlfriend is gay. <laughs> <laughs> I, that's I mean that's what I thought, and I was just like like good for them, like having a little tofu business, kicking yeah. some ass, like good for you know have, just you know, having a little uh, uh, queer femme polycule, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think the, it's kind of coded that one. way intentionally, right? Like with the, you know, non-conforming, you know, gender presentation and like with, um, you know, her kind of rejecting, uh, you know, kind of heterosexual norms for a long time in the movie. Like it does seem like fair to like have made that assumption that's at least like subtext. Yeah, and I don't totally buy that she was like super into marrying Donnie Yen at the end of the movie. Yeah, it's interesting. We were talking last week about um, like she's often framed as like sort of pursued by a love interest. But, um, you know, at least in the movie that I watched last week, it's not really clear that she's with that love interest at the end of the movie. Um, In this case, um, in the scene where um, Donnie Yen like finally kind of, um, I don't know, has his like... You know the the scene in the movie where in in a in a standard like heteronormative male centric movie uh, the hero would kiss the damsel in distress. Uh, Donnie Yen is running to Michelle Yeoh and he trips and that ends <laughs> he ends up like groveling at her feet instead uh, of kissing her. And then when he gets up and they're walking away together, he's kind of like caressing her shoulder in a way that almost seems like the way that a kid would would uh, behave around his mom as opposed to uh, a lover right um so like even in a movie like this where she does end up with a romantic partner she's always like kind of placed above him in terms of power and and and, and you know in general well, she also just never seems super engaged in any of that stuff you know yeah it, it, like like she kind of like it, it so it just seems like the back half of the movie is weird because so she goes she fights the guy and pulls his pole out and you know meet in three days <laughs> and then she goes to see like her old master and, and she's like yeah like you know i should have beaten that guy but ser- like something was missing and the master's like advice is you know you need to complete your life you need to get married and you're like really is that yeah and it's like, very oh. like shoehorned in like because this is all like it's all like within the last 15 minutes of the movie too like the the whole like kind of heroes arc where they kind of have a moment of self-doubt and then like come back and beat it like it's a very quick turnaround in the movie yeah Yeah, and like there's dialogue during that that final marriage scene that seems to like try to undo all the thematic work that the movie had been doing up to that point Uh, i wrote down a quote um I forget who said it. I think that maybe, oh, it's the aunt who says it, who's been kind of like a, the most headstrong, confident, um, you know, uh, uh, um, vocal character uh, when, when like, you know, a directly confronting um, sexism or her society's treatment of women. You know, Michelle Yeoh fights with her, her body, but this woman fights with her voice. Like after she gets married, um, she begins acting very differently and she says to um, everybody else in the scene, which is like the whole cast of the movie, when one is happily married, one looks sweeter and sounds sweeter too. And uh, it's like, that seems like a betrayal of what the movie was doing up until that point. But I also, I, I, 
part of me wants to be like overly generous and say that the movie is doing something thematically interesting with like the idea of soft power. Like she has to pretend to be like the doting, uh, a submissive wife in public, but she's actually the one in charge behind closed doors. Uh, I don't know. Oh, she's, she's uh, definitely the one in charge. Like, like everybody after that last fight is calling her mommy. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm talking about the aunt. I'm not talking about Michelle. Yo, but the same could apply there. I think the aunt is like in charge in the sense of like, um, she's the one who is most enthusiastic about like kind of preserving like normal, like social mores. Um, mm-hmm. And so like, she is, she's not like this outsider figure, you know, she's like a person who has like a very clearly defined role that she wants to embody. And she enthusiastically does that, which kind of de facto makes her a sort of uh, kind of outward facing leader. Um, mm-hmm. Even though Michelle Yeoh obviously has like the, the like, brawn like the pure like uh ability to to rule with power um Mm -hmm. which like i don't know there's something i don't know there's something kind of weird about that like that power then like becomes maybe jokingly maternal at the end when everyone's calling her mommy but it's like through unconventional means that she does that right you know (laughs) like uh, you know, she's just like you know demoralized and and emasculated like all these people, and then they're like, okay, mom, <laughs> like I don't know, mm-hmm. that's a very roundabout and not like traditional way to like achieve like that kind of like you know whatever feminine ideal of being a mother. Um, well, but that's kind of the thing throughout the movie is it's is like like Andrew said, it's always like the bandits are coming after her not because there's like a territory they need to claim or, you know, she owes her money or it's literally just like this lady keeps beating up our people. And so it's like, she just keeps moving. Uh, that's why it's very video game esque. She just keeps moving mm-hmm. up the rankings of the different bandits. Cause they're just like, Hey, you can't, you can't beat up us. And so it, it, it does feel like, you know, very, um, just kind of on that basic level of she she's just emasculating these men left and right um and that's what again that's what, like that's why i felt like the the ending somewhat betrays the whole yeah feeling of the movie because i'm just is like, that yeah. again like having i guess i'm kind of like you andrew where i've seen a few later um you know hong kong like action movies wuxia stuff um but I, I don't have enough of like this time period and before, but is that like a capitulation to like, kind of like genre expectations or like, what do you, how do you guys read that? I don't know. Um, I, I mean, I don't, I can't think of a lot of wuxia movies that are as concerned about marriage as this one is. Uh, yeah. It feels like it's trying to combine uh, multiple genres. Like it, it at, in one gear, it's being doing the like wire foo wuxia thing and in another gear it's this it's a rom-com uh it's just like this real wacky marriage plot um yeah so if, if it's a genre expectation i don't think it's a genre expectation of wuxia it is an extremely wacky marriage plot by the way like because yeah. i can't remember if we said this already in the podcast or if this was um well in between like in the off off mic section but um the 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 male love interest mistakes like he's looking for a childhood 
friend slash mm-hmm. like love interest and gets it wrong like for most of the movie and like they kind of have a heart to heart like at least like two-thirds of the movie through that indicates like oh actually you're the one i've been looking for this whole time and then he just switches mm-hmm. gears like immediately even after also this other person we should note that when he recognizes Michelle Yeoh, he spits up a little blood. Oh my god! Yeah, I, I had to rewind that because I wasn't sure what had happened. Which you know, when you find the love of your life, who hasn't spit up a little blood? <laughs> what on? I had a, I had a, I liked a uh, letterbox review that like makes reference to that. That was great. Um, <laughs> Well, uh, I feel here, like it yeah, was yeah, basically yeah. just that. Like, yeah, when you're o- is not when you're o- so overjoyed by the discovery of your lifelong crush that you spit up a little blood. <laughs> who among us hasn't? <laughs> um, yeah, I do think this movie is extremely funny. Like, even it when it's like going through these kind of like plotty sections, like it's just like it's gags, but it's also not like it's not like gags that you would see in like a like super cop like jackie chan like mm-hmm. style gags either like they're like it's just silly like it's 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 extremely silly um made more so by this might be a good time to point out that i the american release is dubbed and that is extreme that makes this movie even sillier and i did yeah. not like the dub at all because like it felt like i was watching a cartoon not because of the action on screen which is already kind of cartoonish but like the voices are at the register of like kind of exaggerated delivery that you would hear in like a like a children's cartoon mm-hmm. um so it that, that tip the scales maybe a little bit over the goofy line that like further than i wanted it to be but um right even well, so even without that this movie is is very silly and i thought that that was very charming but honestly i like that about this one yeah for sure just because um yeah like even with the police story that i watch like it gets too it gets it's trying to like explain the plot too much and it and it like creates these like canyons of of plottiness that you're just like when's the next when's jackie chan gonna do more cool shit um and this one is very much like in the mode where like the plottiness of it is just kind of silly and so it's really not super important mm-hmm. like like you know you kind of just follow the basic beats of it and it it makes that stuff short enough that then you get to the when's michelle yo gonna beat the shit out of people or I even when it's, it's going most... through the even when it's going through the plotty parts it's like throwing in the weird stuff like he's spitting up blood or like you know just mm-hmm. different stuff like that like the uh, there's not like dry sections of the movie where they have to shift pieces around like in like uh like police story or or whatever um i also think that like not only are the fight scenes not uh, like spaced out too far um but i think that the plot that that stitches them together is kind of good in its own right like i i would enjoy watching this movie even if there weren't fight scenes in it because the the writing is so funny and the performances are so wacky um and like it is a movie that doesn't have a lot of fat on it um, narratively. Um, there's there's not really that much of a like a B plot mm-hmm. in this movie. It it does have kind of these intertwining leads, but they're all kind of living the same life and experiencing the same story. 
and like every scene is like a direct continuation of um you know what you were invested in in the previous one um and so it, it really uh is um like a very compelling watch i thought yeah no i like honestly i recommend this to people it's just it's it's very light it's very breezy it's silly um the mm-hmm. action is super fun um and yeah, the performances, you know, you have Michelle Yeoh and Donnie Yen, who, you know, Michelle Yeoh is is popping up in big movies now. Donnie Yen's been in like Star Wars. He's going to be in the new uh, John Wick movie, like very accomplished uh, mm-hmm. martial artists. So it's kind of like fun to see them early on. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I there's also that weird scene in it where the three women are like talking and then the tofu beauty like gives them like this foot massage that like makes them have an <laughs> orgasm. That you're just like, oh man, that on? scene. <laughs> that's an, we'll see. So that's another scene where um, that's like a kind of queer coded element, right? That's what I'm saying. Like, I'm like, right, I'm like, yeah. no. I'm like the, these three, these three are in a relationship together and I'm happy for them. They have their tofu business. Michelle Yeoh has her beating ass business. Like <laughs> they're covered. Like what's, what's, the, what's anybody going to add to this? Is that, so there's another scene um, or maybe it's the same, maybe it's the, the foot massage scene. I can't remember, but it's, there's something kind of like sensual going on and they keep cutting to this, the press that they make the tofu out of. It's like oozing. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, oh yeah, my yeah. God. It's the oh, scene where the, uh, the ant like tries to seduce yeah. uh, this guy who's there to see the tofu beauty. And the way she does it is like, okay, so he's like, uh, pulling on this lever, they uh, this pretty much machine that he has to crank in order to get like whatever it is in the tofu uh, moving, um, and like the noises that she's that he's making and the movements that he's doing turn her on. So she like decides to quote unquote help him by getting behind him and like wrapping her arms around his waist and like they both just start making sex noises but they're just like pulling on this mechanical machine uh yeah and then as it's like intercut with like the machine pressing the whatever the tofu or whatever and there's like this kind of uh you know the fluids tofu tofu fluids coming out (laughs) and i was just like what the fuck is going on right now Like they're just straight up banging in this movie, but also not. But it, it's it's like honestly like some tampopo energy. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Where it's just like some nice like food sex things going on. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, go go find the Daily Motion links and watch the China the 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 Chinese version with the English subtitles and like it's yeah. a fun time. It's a mm-hmm. it's ninety minutes. It's pretty short. Yeah. One of the um, top-rated reviews on Letterboxd has the links to the Daily Motion uh, videos, which is how I found it. But you know, if this if this podcast series accomplishes nothing else, um, not that it would actually accomplish this, but one thing I would love for this podcast series to accomplish would be a home video release of Wing Chun. Like, why is yeah. uh, Michelle Yeoh's back catalog just, like, really hard to watch? I didn't know that um, her stuff was so inaccessible before we started this series. Um, but this is definitely a highlight that that should be out there for people who want to dig into her filmography. 
Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's also worth noting that, um, so next week we're going to be talking about her, the, the appearance in her Bond movie, um, mm-hmm. which is Tomorrow Never Tomorrow Dies. Tomorrow Never Dies. I'm curious if, so the North American release of this movie is 1998. Um, the Bond movie came out in 1997, and I'm curious if this oh. had a North American release because of her presence in the Bond movie. I bet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I You know, maybe uh, in the same vein, everything, everywhere, all at once will kind of, like, reignite interest in, in like, her, her older films in the, well, even, in the West. Even- yeah, I mean, even like the super cop movies that we talked about last week, and and yes, madam, like those, you would think at least we'd get something out there because you're just like, mm-hmm. like, like, like we were talking about while trying to develop the series, like a lot of her, a lot of like her more like her American roles where she starts to like work kind of exclusively here, are like relatively like recent, you know, like she yeah. was in. She was in the Kung Fu Panda movies, doing a voice. She was in Crazy Rich Asians. She was in you know everything everywhere. Um, I was. Uh, she, I think she had like a. She popped up. Let me look real quick on Letterboxd. She's in Guardians of the Galaxy two. Yeah, oh, but that's, that's right, like a, yeah. that's kind of just like a extended kind of cameo thing. Mm-hmm. Um, she was in Shang Chi. Um, in in. Yeah, I'm just like looking like that's pretty much it in terms of she's going to be in the ne- in the third, fourth, and fifth Avatar, which fuck yeah, I'm excited. <laughs> Ready for um, like Navi Michelle Yeoh for sure. Yeah, hell yeah. But like yeah, like she has this like very like this giant variety of um, Hong Kong action movies, especially like with Jackie Chan that you're just like, yeah, like let's let's get that out there and yeah, you know criterion put out the first two police story movies so why why don't they just put out police story three and and super cop two you know not that i love super cop two but i think that the early michelle yo stuff should be available if people want to see it yeah because i mean even though even police story three like it's not it's not great but damn does it have some awesome like fight sequences between with her and jackie chan so mm-hmm like really, what else do you want in life other than fight giant <laughs> giant fight sequences with Jackie Chan and Michelle Yeoh? Like, come on. I was just looking on the internet, and it looks like most of the home video releases um, of her stuff, like this era of of stuff, are like Region Two, like uh, which mm. just kind of sucks. Um, anyway. They're out like the the home videos are out there, just not not in our part of the world. Mm-hmm. It's bogus. Stupid, stupid America. This is the issue. We're this is the biggest issue we're dealing with. <laughs> um. All right. Well, that'll wrap up this episode of Cinematary. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cinematary on Twitter and Instagram at handle at cinematary and on letterboxd at letterboxd.com slash cinematary, where we list all the movies that we talked about in this episode. Um, thank you to our patrons. Go to patreon.com slash cinematary. If you'd like to support the show, thank you to Cam, Chad Newsom, Candace Sisson, Ron Hayes, Teresa Marsathi, Titus Arthur and Tyler Chandler. Thank you so much for your patronage. Like we said next week, we're going to be dipping into the first like full episode on a James Bond movie for Cinematary, and that's going to be 1997's Tomorrow Never Dies. Which, what a unique pick to like be like, we're going to jump into a Bond movie. The <laughs> James Everyone, Bond movie. Favorite. 
<laughs> I, hope that, uh, yeah. I hope that's the only one we ever do is just tomorrow never dies and that's it not even the pierce brosnan one that everyone watches yeah not even the popular pierce brosnan one <laughs> um but i'm super excited for it because i think it's like i i again having not seen it i feel like it's gonna be kind of a like after watching the all of these movies where michelle yo is incredibly capable of like all these very intricate fight sequences it's about to get very westernized and boring mm-hmm. <laughs> um maybe yeah yeah i'm curious to see what the action looks like in that movie we'll yeah is this is this the one with the snow skiing segment there was a video game a james Bond video game i played growing up that had a snow skiing level i know that there's some in like the older james Bond movies but maybe it's this one too i don't know we'll see michelle yo We'll see in two weeks. Yeah. We'll see in two weeks. We'll figure it out. Um, Thanks. Thanks y'all for listening. See you.